the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. We get on the air each weekend uh, thanks to the efforts of Alan Dempsey. He's our engineer. And Andrew Herdlisk is our producer. And Dominic Doan is our first guest, pastor of Westside, a Jesus Church in Portland, Oregon. And uh, his new book is out. It's called When Faith Fails, Finding God in the Shadow of Doubt. Dominic, welcome. I hope things are well with you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I, I want the background on this book. What What brought it about? Sure, yeah. I went through a period in my life um, where it, it felt like my faith was failing. And uh, I, uh, it was a dark period, um, over a period of a couple years, as I was wrestling with some doubts about God and faith and the Bible and Christianity. And uh, going through that season, I just felt a burden to want to help people who may be in that similar space and to give them practical tools, kind of share a little bit about my story, share what Scripture has to say about the subject of doubt, and really to help people who feel like their faith is just barely clinging on. Well, you open your book with a chapter called Knowing We Don't Know. Uh, Please explain that one. Yeah, of course. Uh, So chapter one, I kind of take a step back and look at the subject of doubt from about 30,000 feet. And many, many Christians, when they think of the word doubt, it's a trigger word, and they associate doubt with unbelief. Um, But I, I like to look at kind of the faith journey as a spectrum. So Let's say on one side you have faith, which is what God wants us to grow in and we're moving towards in our understanding of God. And on the other side, we have unbelief. So faith and unbelief, they're opposites. Doubt, however, is kind of that middle space in between. Um, Doubt is kind of essentially neutral. It's like a spiritual Switzerland or something. And it can lead us to greater faith or it can lead us into greater unbelief. Um, but I, I distinguish in that chapter um, what, what the difference is between doubt and faith and unbelief. And uh, I go to Genesis. So in Genesis uh, chapter 1, we see God creating a world in, in which there's limitations. So we have a limitless God creating a, a limited world. He then places us in it, and we, we have all kinds of limitations, too, to our time, to our intellect, and to our knowledge. And, and yet at the same time, God makes us curious. He gives us the desire to learn and to grow and to understand. And so if you look at Genesis 1, and if that becomes our understanding, a framework of doubt, I think it's a game changer, because many, many Christians, their starting point is Genesis 3, where Satan uses doubt in a negative, destructive way. Um, but if you start in Genesis 1, you actually see that mystery and questioning and unknowing can actually be an opportunity to seek and pursue truth. Now, Dominic, I want you to uh, get to the second topic for us, Between Two Worlds. Uh, what's happening here? Yeah, so in, in Chapter 2, um, I basically make the argument that when we go through times of doubt, um, it can be an opportunity for us to encounter God in ways that we never have before. Um, I, I kind of lay out the two different stories of Frederick Nietzsche and Mother Teresa which are not uh, two people you'd imagine being compared to one another, as they were polar opposite in so many different ways. Um, And yet, what's interesting about their stories is they both went through a time of just agonizing doubt and and struggling with their faith. And what's fascinating is that Mother Teresa, through her season of doubt, um, it drove her closer into God and into a deeper, more authentic form of faith, Whereas Frederick Nietzsche, it actually drove him away from God, away from faith, towards nihilism and atheism. And so I I lay out there how when we go through times of doubt, 
we have a choice to make. We, we can utilize and harness those doubts to go deeper and further towards God, or we can allow them to, to drive us away. And uh, my goal in that chapter really was to help people see the opportunity, the redemptive opportunity that doubt has in our life. Now I want you to explain to us when the sun goes dark. Yes. <laughs> so chapter three, um, I talk about how although doubt is an opportunity to grow in faith, it is also very, very difficult. So we have to remember that um, right now, two-thirds of American Christians uh, say that they struggle with doubt on a regular basis. That's according to a recent survey that was done. Um, a Gen Z, which is the generation after the millennials, is considered the least Christian generation of our nation's history. And so right now, we live in this moment where we breathe the secondhand smoke of doubt. There's so many things that are causing us. Uh, to question our faith or have uncertainty about what we believe. And when we go through times like that, when our faith is shaken, when our our certainties are disrupted, uh, when our theology uh, seems less stable, it can be really, really disorienting. And uh, so I talk about that in the chapter, um, you know, Asaph in Psalm 73. I think he put it best. He said that, as for me, my feet almost slipped. And that feels that way when we go through times of doubt. And so towards the end of that chapter, I then begin to open up and share a little bit about my own personal story and how I went through a time that was similar to that. My guest is Dominic Doon, and uh, we're talking about his book, When Faith Fails. I See Stars. Yeah. So Explain that. Chapter four. Yeah, I See Stars. Um, that was a, a chapter that I hadn't prepared myself to write. In fact, when I first sat down to pen out this book, um, I really hadn't planned on chapter four. But the deeper I got into the book, and it's taking on a life of its own, I realized I can't write a book on doubt unless I'm really honest about the time in my life where my faith was shaken. Um, and, and not just at a surface level, different questions that I had, but but being honest about the season of life where I was uh, really disturbed by questions that, that the atheist community was asking. And so in, in that chapter, um, I talk about a time in my life when I moved back to Oxford. Um, I was actually born in Oxford. Uh, you'd never guess it based on my accent. Um, and uh, we went back as a family, uh, doing my master's degree there. And it, it was a time in my life where I really wanted to get honest about my doubts, just Growing up, things I'd experienced and seen, questions I'd had about the Bible, um, issues that, that I'd been suppressing for many, many years. And so in that time of Oxford, at Oxford, I wanted to lay it all on the table and begin to ask the question, okay, what do I really believe and why? And part of my program was um, studying the works of atheist philosophers and thinkers. And uh, so I took a good year and going through all these books and looking at their arguments and and it was very, very challenging for my faith. And uh, Nietzsche, he had this line, he said, if you stare into the abyss long enough, um, that the abyss will stare into you. And uh, so it was a time of deep questioning, um, but it was also a time of redemption um, where God really used that to draw me closer to him. And it was a time of wrestling. It was a time where my wife just gave me so much good advice. I was in Oxford, which is the city of uh, C.S. Lewis, so I was able to kind of immerse myself in his works and thinkers like him. And uh, towards the end of that season, uh, hence the name I See Stars, it was a time where I really just encountered God in in a fresh and beautiful way. Uh, Talk to us about uh, the topic, can I trust the Bible, question mark? Yeah, of course. I think this is one of the most prevalent questions and topics that people are wrestling with. Um, so what I do in the book um, is it's, it's three parts. Uh, chapters one through four is kind of laying the foundation and then sharing my own story. Um, in the heart of the book, I unpack specific topics that cause people to doubt. And that that part of the book could have been much, much bigger because there's so many topics, but I wanted to take four of the big ones. And I started with, can I trust the Bible? Because when a person goes through a, a time of doubt, um, often um, what's causing it is a distrust or uncertainty 
or lack of confidence in what the Bible has to say and the promises of God's Word. And, uh, I mean, let's face it, the more we study the Bible, it's, it's full of hope and beauty and redemption, but there's also parts of the Bible that can be uh, confusing or or bizarre or bloody, and, and, and it can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. Dominic Doan is our guest. His book, When Faith Fails... We've got another uh, another segment with Dominic here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. My guest is Dominic Doan. He's in Portland. His book, Portland, Oregon. His book, When Faith Fails. And, uh, Dominic, we've arrived at the topic, Is Science the Enemy of Faith? What do you write there? Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, I say no, it isn't. Um but there are many people who think that science is the enemy of faith, and they feel that they have to choose between belief in God and what science has to say. And I make the argument there that, you know, we shouldn't be afraid of science, that science actually is the discovery and asking questions about the world that God has made. And the more that we learn, whether it's through the microscope or the telescope, the more that we see the beauty of God. You think of that verse in Psalms where it says, the heavens declare the beauty of God. And we do a brief trace of history in that chapter. I talk through different scientists who are also strong believers and how their their faith actually enriched their science and their science enriched their faith. And that moves us to this topic. Why is the world so broken? Mm. Boy, that chapter was one of the hardest questions to write, uh, because in it, I'm unpacking the problem of evil. Uh, It's what philosophers call theodicy, and trying to give a defense for why God would allow certain injustices. And I start with a story um, when I was in Uganda and had a chance to see some of the ministries our church was supporting and spend some time with former child soldiers and hearing their story and the, the heartache, the brokenness they had gone through. And so in that chapter, I I want to be really honest about the heartache and injustice and brokenness that's in the world, and then say, why why would God allow that? I think all of us, we we struggle with that, and we go through things personally as well that cause our faith to be shaken. And so in that chapter, I I look at different answers that that Scripture has given, that uh, people have given over the years, um, but then ultimately land by bringing it back to Jesus. So when we look to Jesus, his death on the cross and the resurrection actually is uh, a hope and a promise for us that someday the brokenness of our world will be resurrected and restored. It's time uh, now, Dominic, to talk about why is God silent? Mm, Yeah, so many of us have gone through times when we've prayed and prayed and prayed, and we've heard no answer. I was in Israel recently, and I was uh, praying at the Western Wall. There was a gentleman next to me who was praying in Hebrew. And uh, then he stopped, and we struck up a conversation in English. And I asked him how long he'd been there. And he said, I've been coming here for 40 years. And I said, what's it like? He said, most of the time it's wonderful, and I can sense the presence of God. And then he said, sometimes it's like talking to a wall. (laughs) And I think sometimes our prayers can feel that way, where... We're praying and crying out to God, and we hear nothing but crickets in return. And in that chapter, I argue that actually God is speaking. It's just not in ways that we may fully hear properly. Um, God speaks in a whisper, uh, First Kings says. But to hear a whisper, we have to silence the noise that's around us. My guest, Dominique Doan, he's in Portland, uh, talking about his new book that's out, When Faith Fails. Now, explain to us the luchador. What, what, <laughs> yes, what is the, that? Yeah, the luchador. Luchador. Tell um, so, for any fans of Nacho Libre, you'll recognize that. Uh, the luchador uh, means the wrestler. And I, I use um, the story of Jacob as really a, a picture of what it means to wrestle with God through our doubt. And so it really sets up the final part of the book here where I, I get more practical and say, here's some nuts and bolts ways that we can bring our doubts to God and how we can move through those seasons of doubt in pursuit of deeper faith. And so in that chapter, I start with Jacob, and then I talk about the 
role that prayer plays in our life. Um, I talk about the importance of, of just learning and engaging the life of the mind. And then I, I close with a section on how community, um, having friendships that are authentic and vulnerable, can actually be so helpful for us in liberating and redemptive in our times of doubt. Explain to us, be the answer. Mm, uh, I think that may be my favorite chapter Why? in the book. Because in, in this chapter, I talk about how our doubts can actually be redeemed in our own life story. Um, I in, Earlier in the book, I talked about Mother, Ter- uh, not Mother Teresa, but uh, uh, Sister Rosemary and how she experienced such uh, incredible pain um, as she's helping child soldiers, and she saw these stories and heartache and injustice. And I asked her at one point over dinner, I said, how, how, do, you, how do you reconcile all that you've seen with a belief in a good God? And her, her answer has always struck, stuck with me. She said, you know, I don't know why God allowed these things, but I've devoted my life to being the answer to it. I, I, I want to bring light where there is no light. I want to bring hope into the brokenness of the world. And so I think that, that our doubts can be redeemed if we choose to say, what is the thing that I'm really disturbed by? What is it that is creating the most questions in me? And what would it look like for me to be the answer? In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, we're to drive a spoke into the wheel of injustice. So if we're troubled by the world's suffering and that's causing doubt, what would it look like for us to be the answer to that, uh, to, to go out filled with the Spirit to make a difference in the world for, for God's kingdom? I want you to uh, talk about balloons and spears and explain that. Yes. Um, so at the end, I close with a story of when I was a missionary in a place called Vanuatu. Um, I also opened the book this way, too, with a different story, um, which is considered the world's uh, most primitive nation. It's uh, like stepping into a National Geographic special. And I lived there for three years uh, in, in a hut, uh, no electricity, no running water. And I tell a story there about a, a spear-throwing contest that they had. Um, and the winner of the spear-throwing contest would get to kind of be the honored as, as the man of the village. Um, so it was a big deal uh, in, in this village that I was close to. And I actually tried entering this contest and failed terribly. You can read about that story, but I, I use the story kind of as a, a picture of what it means um, to let go, um, letting go of our doubts, letting go of destructive ideas about God, uh, letting go of our need to know everything, and instead to embrace the fragile beauty of trust. I think God is more important or more interested in us having a, a relationship with Him that is built on intimacy and trust than one that is just synthetic and distant where we pretend that we have all the answers. As I read your book, Dominic, uh, I I think I come away with the feeling that um, questioning is normal. Uh, Do you agree Mm. with that? I do, yeah. You know, um, Jesus said that we're to come to him as, as children. And if there's one... Uh, defining characteristic of a child, it's that they love to ask questions. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, God actually commands his people. Uh, he says, when your children ask you, what does this mean? This is what you're to say. So God, he expected his children to ask questions. Um, Jesus, that's how he led his disciples 307 times uh, in the New Testament. Jesus asked his disciples questions. That's how they grew and how they learned. And then they ask him questions in return. So I think it's not only normal, but I also think it's essential uh, for our faith to grow. How do you deal with the difficult parts of the Bible? Do you have any insights on that, Dominic? Yeah, you know, um, yeah, there there are so many different texts and stories that can raise more questions than answers. But what I find is, first, our starting point is Jesus. You know, he is the fulfillment of the law. So looking at Scripture through the lens of Jesus, and then also um, doing the research and, and understanding the genre and the context and the authorship and peeling back the layers of history and culture and archaeology, what you find is that at a surface reading, some texts can be really surprising or even disturbing. 
But when you begin to peel back those layers, you begin to discover answers and a depth and a beauty that has sustained and inspired the Christian story for millennia. Well, as I'm listening to you, Dominic, I think those people who have struggled with doubt, I think you're telling them they're not alone. Exactly. Yep. I mean, the, the stats definitely bear that out. Um, but more importantly, you, you look at Scripture and you find that it's filled with people uh, who wrestled with God, who had raw, honest questions, whether it's David saying, How long, O Lord? or Habakkuk, who wrestled with God over issues of injustice, or even the disciples, you know, Matthew 28. Um, it says that some disciples worshipped and another disciples doubted. And what I love is that Jesus didn't separate the worshippers from the doubters. I probably would have done that. You know, send the worshippers or send the doubters home and the worshippers, you can go change the world. But Jesus sent both of them out. Jude 22 says, be merciful to those who doubt. And no one showed greater mercy to those who had doubts and questions than Jesus. Dominic, what do you remember about growing up in England? Ah, yeah, so I was only eight um, when we moved. And uh, that, I, I do have some, some fond memories, also some hard memories. It was a, kind of a difficult season for, for my family. My parents at that time, uh, they weren't Christians. Um, and so we, we weren't going to church or anything. And my parents were going through some pretty tough stuff um, in their marriage. But uh, I, I love the culture. I love the history. Um, I was born in Oxford, so going back to Oxford later on was just a, a real treat. Um, and it's a country that is steeped in, with people who they have their own doubts and questions, and, and, and yet uh, they were able to harness those uh, for redemption and beauty. So going back and reading guys like C.S. Lewis, who went through his own times of doubt, if you read A Grief Observed, and yet and through that he discovered intimacy with God. What was the highlight of your time uh, at the University of Oxford where you got a Master of Theology? Yeah, so, um, boy, Oxford is such a special place. Um, and I knew that there would be a strong anti-God presence. You know, it started 800 years ago uh, as a Christian community. Mm. Um, but as the years have gone by, it's gotten more and more secular, progressive, non-Christian, mm -hmm. and that presence is certainly there. Um, uh, Richard Dawkins, for example, who wrote The God Delusion, he was just a stone throw away from where I studied, and so there's a strong atheist presence there. But I was surprised and encouraged by the vibrancy of the Christian community there as well. It's kind of this electric atmosphere where I've never seen a community, a city, take the subject of God so seriously at an intellectual level, academic level. So getting to be a part of those conversations was really stimulating intellectually. But then personally, as I went through my own season of kind of deconstruction and reconstruction, uh, it was challenging, but the best experience of my life. Tell me about your church in Portland. Yeah, so I, I have the honor of uh, getting to baptize, or getting to, um, baptize people week in, week out, and, and share the gospel um, at Westside of Jesus Church, which um, is a church in the suburbs of Portland, and uh, it's just filled with, with tons of young people, which is really, really good. Uh, we have four services on a Sunday, and uh, the community is just passionate about um, the gospel and then making a difference in the world as well. Um, so it's a non-denominational Christian church, and we're going through Scripture together. In fact, when I get off the phone, I'll be studying the Gospel of John to, to share on Sunday. Um, but just a really loving, uh, very, very uh, active uh, community, ma making a difference in, in one of the more progressive areas of our nation. And yet, Dominic, those of us who live down here in the Bible Belt, uh, our sense is that the Pacific Northwest is uh, is very dry spiritually and empty. Yeah. What, what, what can you tell us? Yeah, you know, that's true, too. I mean, this, this area is considered one of the least uh, churched areas in our nation. I think we're tied with Seattle and San Francisco. Um, so it is definitely post-Christian, 
Um, but on the flip side, I, I kind of like to see post-Christian as pre-revival. <laughs> and oftentimes it's in the darker places where God's Spirit has room to do something new. And um, so what we're seeing in Portland is, yes, the need is overwhelming, um, but there are churches and Christians that are, are making a difference, and a little light can go a long way in a dark room. Well, I'm so glad we could visit Dominic Doan, <clears throat> pastor of Westside, a Jesus Church in Portland, Oregon, and we've been talking about his book, When Faith Fails. We'll be, b- <clears throat> we'll be back right after these messages on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando. Uh, Dominic Doan, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, When Faith Fails. Well, Sandy Patty joins us. She's in Oklahoma City, the most awarded female vocalist in contemporary Christian music history. She's in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame, an Indiana living legend, uh, over 30 albums with 12 million sold. Oh, boy. And her book is out. That's the good news. It's called The Voice. Welcome, Sandy. How are you? I am wonderful, Pat. It's so great to hear your voice. Uh Uh-huh. We've been friends for many, 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 many years. Yeah, we go way back, Sandy, back to yes, the we do. Spectrum mm-hmm. in Philadelphia when you came. And we, we had a an event, which are now pretty common in pro sports, but it, it was called uh, uh, Faith and Family Night. And it, it was yeah. the first time we did it, and we brought you in, and we did the two of them a year for five years. It was, And now, throughout pro sports, they're, they're common. So... Uh, Yes, they are. You you were part of history, Sandy. <laughs> All right. You're That's what happens when you get it old. <laughs> Sandy, Sandy, your new book, The Voice, uh, why did you want to write another book? It's, you, you've written before. Why Why this one? You know, I, um, I finished up my last big tour about two years ago, and it was just time not to quit, but just to really slow down from being on the road. And I find myself in a, a really fun season of my life where I'm able to speak into the generation that's coming behind me, some of which are my kids. A lot of the people are kids and families at our church. And they're often asking me, you know, what did you learn in this season? What did you learn in this season? And as I begin to think about that, I realized, that um, I have learned a lot of stuff on, along the way, but I didn't always feel confident in speaking up and speaking out about the stuff that I've learned. And so in this season of my, of my life, I just felt like I wanted to be able to share, first share my journey and of being a shy kid and, and having a hard time with words to being in a season where words now become a great source of comfort for me, and I can pass those words on to the generation coming behind. Sandy, you open your book with this topic, the shy girl with a song. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? You know, Pat, I was, um, I was a very shy kid, and words were hard for me. And I would hear music. You know, my dad was a minister of music. My mom, wonderful pianist. And I remember um, feeling, when I would hear a song, I would think, that is how I feel. So I really started learning music so that I could tell somebody how I felt. And while I've gotten a lot more comfortable with words over the years, Really, music has been and remains my voice. You then uh, move to this topic, resetting the clock. Uh, explain what's happening at this point in your life. Yeah, resetting the clock is, is a great analogy. I've come to really, um, really like the way it helps explain a very difficult topic. Um, when I was six years old, a woman family friend in our life felt that her pleasure was more important than my innocence. And so for a week, because it happened to be, I was, I was spending some time with her this particular week. 
um, I began to get messages from that abuse of this is your fault. You deserved it. No one's going to believe you. You'll be the one who gets in trouble. And so my already very quiet voice became silent. And um, I began to believe the reality of what abuse does, and that is to believe a lot of lies. Mm. And so a number of years later, I was in a hotel room, and I was basing all of my uh, getting ready to leave and what time I had to check out on a clock that was beside my bed. And so I thought, oh, I've got this extra time. It just feels good. Until I realized the clock had been set wrong. Mm. But I was basing all of what I was doing and reacting on what I believed to be true, which for a moment caused a great deal of chaos in my heart. Um, And as a, you know, just to make a very long story short, I realized that that's very much what sexual abuse does. Um, Any kind of abuse, it begins to set our clock wrong. And so we view the rest of the world through a lens that we believe is true, but in fact, it isn't true. And until I began to let God's word into my heart and allowed him to sort of reset my clock to his truth and not the truth that I had picked up and then believed when I was sick, did that clock begin to be reset. Sandy Patty is our guest. Uh, the name of her book is The Voice. It's a it's quite a read. Uh, Sandy, I read it in two sittings. Um, oh, my goodness. Yeah, I couldn't. I, once I got into it, it was too riveting. Um, mm-hmm. Who said I shouldn't talk? Uh, mm-hmm. That's that's the third topic. There's a question mark at the end of that statement. Yeah. Um, so what do you mean here? What, what's, what's the story? You know, um, kids, kids will pick up messages that really aren't meant to be sent. Um, and yet, kids have this way of sort of putting two and two together in what they see in the world and coming up with a, a, a solution to a, a, a problem. Uh, I use the story of my grandson, um, who's now five, and we were FaceTiming. FaceTiming is the best for grandparents. Um, it's just the best. Anyway, we were FaceTiming one day, and he said, Nani, my dad had to have a piece of his heart taken out. I said, really? I said, tell me about that. And he said, yeah, he had to have a piece of his heart taken out, but the doctor gave him stitches, and it's going to be okay. Mm. Well, what had happened is, you know, like most of us, we, we need to go see a dermatologist, and when we haven't been wise about how we've been in the sun, um, there are pieces, you know, that need to be removed from our skin. But this particular piece of our of our son-in-law was right near his heart. And so when he was explaining it to Thatcher, our grandson, Thatcher just sort of drew his own conclusion that this piece had to be sort of taken out of his heart. Um, and I think that for me moving through life as a kid, my parents never really argued. Um, I never saw them argue. Uh, They did argue, I've come to find out. But they chose not to argue in front of us, my brothers and myself. So I drew a conclusion, much like Thatcher drew a conclusion about his dad. I drew a conclusion that if you are with the right person, you will not ever have arguments. So I just sort of carried that um, unrealistic belief through my life. And um, it wasn't until, you know, many years into my first marriage that I began to understand what an unrealistic belief that was. Um, In fact, it is quite healthy to have a disagreement if you can, you know, work through it and, 
as adults and come to a conclusion and really hear each other and speak what you need to speak. So when I felt any type of um, disagreement in my spirit, I felt like, well, I shouldn't speak up. So nobody ever really told me, don't speak up. It was sort of a conclusion I I sort of drew myself. Um, I think in the church, I don't think that we were ever really encouraged to um, understand that life is always both ends. That there's there's always God is good, and at the same time, life is hard. And so we would walk into church, and how are you? Great. When you know we may have a kid who is really struggling with substance abuse or their identity, or um, we may have um, some kids who are going through a really tough time in their own marriage. Um, whatever it may be, we just sort of picked up an unintentional message that we shouldn't speak up about the hard things of life. And so I am learning in this season, it really is okay to speak up about those things. It's speaking up about those things, I think, that um, makes a common ground for all of us to really begin in community, seek what God has for us. Sandy, at what point in your life did you realize you had some singing talent? Uh, I tell you, I'm, I have always loved to sing. Music was a language of our family. And, um, you know, when we would drive with my family and to church or on vacation, we didn't have all the gadgets that you know, kids have now. And so... We would have conversation. We would make up songs. We would, you know, harmonize together. And quite honestly, Pat, and I know this sounds naive, but I really just kind of thought that's what every family did. Mm -hmm. um, I just assumed every family prayed before a meal. I just assumed every family went to church on Sunday. I assumed every family sang together. And as I got older and I began to experience my friends, families, I began to realize probably late in high school, there was something very special about the language of music of which our family spoke. And um, I began to appreciate that so much more. But I went to college because I wanted to teach school. Um, I thought my music would be an asset to teaching. I never really thought about being an artist or doing any traveling. Uh, but while I was at college at Anderson University, I met Bill and Gloria Gaither and began doing some traveling with them. And they let me sing a song by myself in the concert. And doors just began to open for me, Pat, that I was not expecting. And people from the Philadelphia 76ers called <laughs> come sing the national anthem and All, be part of our faith and family night. And it's like, what? So... I just began to say to God, you know what, God, if you are opening these doors, then I just want to honor you as I walk through them, thinking in a few years I would go back to teaching. But that's been now close to 40 years, mm. and I'm so very grateful for the opportunities that God has, has given me and has brought my way, and I just wanted to honor him as I've walked through the doors that he's opened. Sandy, uh, tell me about the confusion on the spelling of your first name and your last name. And uh, do people finally have it right now? <laughs> yeah, I know. It, you know, it's very confusing. So my family name is spelled P-A-T-T-Y. That is it's a French, it's a French derivative. That's my mom and dad's name. That's my grandparents' name. That's my great-grandparents' name. That's our last name, P-A-T-T-Y, on my birth certificate. When my first recording came out, um, I was so excited to get it. And lo and behold, they had misspelled my last name, mm. P-A-T-T-I. Mm. And um, 
everybody just thought it was so cute because my first name was already spelled F-A-N-D-I. And so my last name was spelled P-A-T-T-I now, and everybody thought that was so cute. And I just remember thinking to myself, oh, dear, this is a mistake. But if if I ask them to go fix this mistake, it's just going to cost them so much money and reprinting of the records and all the promo material and blah, 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 blah. So I just kind of chose to stay silent and keep that mistake for the first half of my career. My guest is Sandy Patty. The book is out. It's called The Voice. What a read. It's it's marvelous. Uh, you'll be uh, moved by this book. We've got another segment with Sandy. Uh, this is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word, in Orlando, Florida. Sandy Patty is our guest, The Voice, listening for God's voice and finding your own. Sandy, I want you to expand on that subtitle for us, Ex- listening for God's voice and ex- and finding your own. What, what does that subtitle mean to you? I think for a long time I had a voice, but it was my singing voice, and I longed for the courage to be able to speak the thoughts that were in my heart and in my mind, but I just didn't feel like I had the courage to do so. And as I began um, in my mid-20s to attend Bible study fellowship, I began to first hear God's voice as we would study the lessons every week. And as I began to hear God's voice, I began to um, assess the voices inside of me differently that the lies I had or taken on, um, or the unintentional um, solutions that I believe to be true, I began to have those challenged, and um, I began to not only hear God's voice, but I began to hear a a much stronger and more confident voice inside of myself. And so I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I don't know why specifically women, tend to have a more difficult time with uh, being confident in their voice. But I also know that, that men do as well. Men feel like they have to portray a certain image. And um, just the permission to be able to accept my authentic self and to be able to speak out the things that maybe I have a disagreement with or um, I don't like conflict at all, so that has been a real challenge for me. But just to learn what my own voice sounds like and take confidence in that, that God gave me that voice. And not talking about singing at all, you know, about the, the thoughts and the prayers and the words and all that. Sandy, I'm curious, um, when, when you were out on the road and doing your concerts in big arenas and you know, facilities, guaranteed at the end standing ovation, uh, just an outpouring from the audience. Uh, How did that make you feel? I always knew that what I was singing about was true. And I always knew that it was life-changing. But always sort of in the back of my mind, I had to Three little words that finished every sentence for me. And those three words were, except for me. So I could tell people about God's love. And I could tell people that you just come to him just like you are. But always there were those three little words, except for me. Mm. And so that, that always remained a barrier in a way that I couldn't really receive the love and the support and encouragement of the audience. Um, I always felt like it was one-sided, that I was just there to encourage them. But over the last 15, 20 years, I've really begun to understand, oh, I'm the one who gets the better in the video. Mm. They are there to just encourage me, and I've learned to receive that. Sandy, is your voice still as strong as ever? 
You know, I have to say in different ways. Is that is that okay? That's a that's the answer. In different ways, there is a um, there's a maturity not only in my voice, but I think there is a maturity in my spirit that I understand the lyrics in a way that I never have. Mm. And so I think that you know the high, 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 high notes that you know say that who who wants to sing those anyway? Um, not me. I feel like those are gone, but I feel like the body of my work has so much more depth and meaning now that when I sing a song and I can sing, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free, mm. that I have a story that I understand those lyrics like I never have before. So, Sandy, what was the decision behind uh, getting off the road? You know, and Pat, you will so get this, because we've all seen those professional athletes who just play one or two years longer than they should have. And instead of kind of going out and we remember them at their peak, they kind of wait. And we are we just kind of sit at home and are embarrassed for them. I just never wanted to be that, mm-hmm. to be real honest. I always took the art very seriously. And I wanted to always be mindful of being able to present the art in its most excellent way that it deserves to be presented. Um, and so I wanted the opportunity to say thank you to um, my fans, to my friends, to the people that have just supported me all these years, while I could say it in the way that the art deserves it. Now, I am still going to be involved in music, and I still do concerts here and there, and, and I love the opportunity to do that. But... You've been around professional athletes, and you know what it takes for them mm-hmm. to stay in tip-top shape. And yes. You know what? I just, I was ready to not have to work that hard at the physiology of it, but in a way work now in a different way to speak to the heart of what worship is and be able to share that with people um, in the generation coming behind me. Sandy, I want you to put Bill and Gloria Gaither into perspective in the history of gospel music. Yeah. How do you do do that? You know, Bill is very, 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 very wise, and he brought amazing people around him. Mm -hmm. So he would, I'm going to use another sports analogy, but... Bill had the incredible ability to load the bases. Mm-hmm. And then he would bring David Belton or, you know, Michael English or whoever, Larnell, and say, okay, no out, bases are loaded, do what you do. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I've, my kids are coming up now and they are singing. And I'm like, I'm thinking, hmm, I'm going to load the bases and I'm going to let Jonathan or Jen or Allie or Katie get up here and smack the ball out of the park. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> there aren't too many male voices like David Phelps, are there? Mm, he can, Very uniquely gifted. Yeah. He can uh, he can bring it with the best of them. Tell me about your duets with Larnell. You know, getting a chance to sing with Larnell Harris has been one of the greatest professional um seasons of my life he just is um he's a gentleman through and through um but you talk about somebody who is attentive to his gift and is attentive to the art of his gift and so even now from time to time maybe twice a year we'll find ourselves in the same place and we get to sing together Mm. And he is just a master storyteller in his music. 
And I love the chances when he and I get to um, sing together, when we get to tell a story together. There's just nothing quite like it. And he is, uh, I don't know how old he is, Sandy, but he uh, he's not a whole lot different than he was 40 years ago. No, he really isn't. And he just, he, he is he's just quite unique and quite rare. And um, God has gifted him. And, you know, if I were to hear him sing next week somewhere, you know, it would, you're exactly right. It doesn't sound any different. Sandy Patty has her new book out with her uh, a beautiful, beautiful picture on the front cover. Uh, the book is in bookstores. Uh, Amazon, a great way to order books. Sandy, a real treat to talk to you. Uh, I send my love. Likewise, Pat. So good to speak with you. Blessings on all that you do and all of your family everywhere. Tell them hi for me. Thank you, Sandy. Uh, folks, uh, we've got to wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, stay with us. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. In the first segment, Dominic Doan was with us from Portland, Oregon, talking about his book, When Faith Fails. And then the great gospel singer, Sandy Patty, Oklahoma City's where she lives. Uh, her new book is out. We talked about it. It's simply called The Voice. Uh, Please visit my website, it's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat, and I uh, want to tell you about my new book, it's called Character Carved in Stone, and uh, Ravel is the publisher, it's about the 12 benches at Trophy Point on the campus at West Point, and the 12 different words carved into the stone. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Mike Krzyzewski, the Duke basketball coach, wrote the foreword, he's a West Point grad. So go visit Amazon. Good way to order books. Barnes & Noble here in our area and so forth. We're back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. This is 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.